0: Hello and good evening everyone. It's so great that technology allows for all of us to meet together virtually even through these trying times. Um, I think we'd all agree it's of utmost importance to talk about, deliberate and pray about how we should be responding to the expected financial challenges uh, during these times of COVID-19. It's something that will definitely affect all of us and not only all of us but affect economies at a global level. Uh, So tonight we have with us Anand Mahadevan who will be speaking with us about financial stewardship uh, during this time of crisis. Um, Before we start there are a few pointers that I want to kind of uh, brief you all with. Uh, Considering the number of people on this link it will be great if uh, we can all mute our mics so that it doesn't cause for distraction in the middle of the, the session. I can give all of us a couple of seconds to just put our mic. Um, if you have trouble finding it, it's on your bottom left corner of the screen. Um, during the webinar, you could also feel free to ask your questions on Slido. Um, you'll find the link to Slido on your chat box. Uh, you can choose to post a question or report someone else's question. Uh, if you click on the link in the chat box, you'll be taken to a page where it'll ask for your event code. Uh, the event code for this session is MCOVID19. All the details are there in your chat box. I would request you to please refrain from asking questions on the Zoom chat window since we might not be able to keep track of all, these, all the questions that keep coming up, uh, which is why we're using Slido, because it allows for the most number of questions to be asked and also allows you to upvote questions, so giving us and the speakers a sense of the room and what the majority of the room is thinking. Uh, you may want to use another mobile device or a separate window to log onto Slido. Um, All right, I would now like to introduce our two speakers for tonight. First up, we have Anand Mahadevan. He is an author, a a church planter, and a business journalist. He penned his first book in 2018, which was titled Grace of God and Flaws of Men. He is also the lead church planter of New City Church, Mumbai, and is married to Ajita, with whom he has two children, Varun and Parsha. Secondly, we have Akshay Rajkumar. Akshay is also an author, publisher, and a church planter. He's written a book titled The Whistler of the Wind. He also leads a company called Ten Letter Word and has planted a church called Redeemer in New Delhi. He lives in Delhi with his wife Shruti and their daughter Mia. Uh, I would now like to call upon Anand Mahadevan to talk to us tonight. Over to you, Anand.
1: Thank you, Jocelyn, and uh, um, thank you, Akshay, and uh, thank you, Redeemer Delhi, for putting this webinar together. Uh, it was really thoughtful of the team at uh, Redeemer Delhi to uh, put this together. Definitely, clearly, this is uh, a big need of the hour, so, so delighted that you responded to it and, and so soon. Um, how the world has changed... <laughs> You know, none of us would have expected this even a month ago, and and even now, I think it's it's all still sinking in. Uh, it's a, it's a pretty bleak scenario out there, both uh, from a health perspective and also economically. Uh, I think the U.S. U.S. stock market uh, indices kind of plunged to the low, had the lowest drop since 1987, single lowest. Uh, lowest drop in a day in, since 1987. Some economists are saying that we're not just looking at a recession, but we are possibly looking at even a depression. Nobody knows how this is all going to play out. And, and, and we're all concerned. We're all concerned about how it's going to affect the, the economy and how eventually it's going to affect our jobs and the money we actually have in our hand. And so these concerns are real, these concerns are pressing, uh, these concerns are pretty immediate. Uh, So I'd like to do four things today. Uh, I want to start off by uh, talking about two reasons to worry less and two reasons to hope more. Then I want to talk about some challenges uh, we should be expecting. And then third, I want to look at some ways in which we can prepare to face these challenges. And lastly, how can we hope in Christ? So, two reasons to worry less and two reasons to hope more. Challenges to expect, how to prepare for these challenges, and how to grow in our hope in Christ Jesus. Uh, let me start off with the first thing two reasons to worry less and uh, two reasons to hope more. Uh, you know, in the midst of all this grief and fear, uh, I really do want us to uh, want to invite us to pause uh, and, and consider the goodness in how global governments have responded to this COVID-19 crisis. Uh, Based on the data so far, we know that if someone is less than 49 years old, and if he or she contracts the coronavirus, there is a less than 1% probability that he or she will die. On the other hand, there is a 4% probability of someone over 60 dying, there's an 8% chance of someone over 70 dying and there's a 15% chance of someone over 80 who's contracted the virus dying. That's based on the official data so far. This means that the economically productive people under 60 years of age are at very, very low risk. But economically unproductive people, people who've gone past the economic productive age, people over 60, are at significantly higher risk. And yet, in country after country after country, we are seeing a total lockdown at great economic loss. I'd like us to pause and consider what is really happening here. Almost every single government in the world has decided that, that younger and economically more productive part of the population will take a huge economic hit to protect the health and the life of the economically unproductive part of the population. So the younger economically more productive population is taking a huge economic hit to protect the health and the life of the older And economically unproductive part of the population. This is remarkable. Collectively, as the human civilization, we are valuing the health and life of older people more than the economic progress of younger people. Friends, what's playing out here is the exact opposite of the survival of the fittest. This is the goodness of human society on full display. And so I really believe we are in a moment where we need to pause and celebrate the collective goodness being demonstrated by world governments and by human society at large. What is playing out is truly incredible. What the world governments are doing is is noble what the world leaders are doing is, is, is beautiful. What we are seeing being played out here. I really believe is, is pleasing to God. And I do want us to see the gospel pattern in this. God dying to save sinners. That's the gospel. And here the econo- economically productive young are taking a hit to save the economically unproductive old. The fear we are all facing is real. The anxiety is real. But I don't want us to miss this beautiful gospel story that is being played out in every country in the world today. And that's the first reason I believe we should, we should worry less. We should worry less because the goodness of human society is, is being displayed so much, despite so much pain and and grief. I also want to share a second reason we should worry less. Um, All of us, I would imagine all of us listening to this webinar are a super privileged people. If English is your first language, if you're most comfortable reading, writing, and speaking English, uh, you are among the elite 1.4 million people of India's 1.3 billion population. Or if you're earning over 80,000 rupees a month, you are, according to the government, uh, among the top 1.1 million people in this country. If you're earning over 80,000 rupees a month, you are among the top 1% uh, of economically well off people in, in the country. And, and that's who we are. That's how privileged we are. And so rather than only crib about how our world is falling apart, we must also be thankful for how privileged we still are despite the crisis. The pictures of of thousands of migrant workers trying to get back to their villages, which we've all been seeing, should remind us of how privileged we are. And so our God-given privilege comes with a responsibility, it comes with a gospel responsibility to worry less and, and be more compassionate. And those are two reasons why we should worry less. I also want to share two reasons why we should hope more as, as Christians. And this is the first reason we should hope more. Biblically, a 21-day economic lockdown is, is no big deal. That's what we're all going through. Biblically, a 21-day economic lockdown is no big deal at all. Uh, The book of uh, Leviticus, perhaps one of the least read books in the Bible, Uh, the book of Leviticus in chapter 25 offers some deep lessons which are very relevant at a time like this. And in this chapter, God is instructing Israel how to run their economy. And God is telling them, sow and harvest the land for six years, but let the land rest for the seventh year. Now, at that point of time, Israel was an entirely agrarian economy. The entire world was an agrarian economy. And so God is prescribing not a 21-day lockdown here, but a 365-day lockdown. And God goes on to, in this chapter, answer the doubts the uh, Israelites obviously have. And God says, you may ask, what do we eat in the seventh year? And then verse 21, God says, I will send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. I'm obviously not going to apply that directly in our context. That's a different context. But the principle in God's word holds true. And and here's the principle I want us to think about. Our work and our careers are only a channel through which God's provision flows into our lives. It is not the source. It's just a channel. It's not the source. God is the source. And that's the first reason as Christians, we should have more hope than everybody else. Um, I'm not unaware of the risk of job loss or pay cuts that that we're all facing. I'm not uh, ignoring the fear and the pain. I feel the fear too. But Christians, we, we have this ability and we must demonstrate our ability to look beyond the fear of the pain more than anyone else. So that's the first reason we should hope more. The second reason we should hope more is an economic reason. Uh, Following the Black Death plague in in the 14th century, uh, I think that that killed about 60% or 40 to 60% of Europe's population. Um, uh, But after that plague, a few years, a few decades after that plague, after the Black Death, there was a significant economic recovery. Wages went up, interest rates came down, inflation dropped. There was a consumption boom followed by a a savings boom. And these were the ingredients that essentially uh, helped uh, produce the economic expansion that swept across 16th century Europe. This is when capitalism was actually birthed. Now, I don't for a moment want to forget the grief that we are faced with. 50,000 people dead, a million infected by the virus. The grief is real. The pain is real. But the world is not going to end in grief. Grief is not the end. We don't know how long the economic slowdown is gonna last. Some economists say it's gonna go on to 2021. Maybe it'll go on to 2025. We don't know. But what we do know, and what we are seeing being displayed so beautifully is the economically productive young are taking a hit to save the economically unproductive old. And I believe that's, that's pleasing God. And I believe God will bless us in the long run. God is not going to abandon us. And so those are two reasons to worry less and two reasons to hope more. The second thing I want to talk about is what challenges can we expect? The first thing I believe is is that the emotional challenges of this slowdown, of this economic crisis that we're faced with, is going to be far greater than the economic challenges. The emotional challenges are going to be far greater than the economic challenges. What do I mean by that? Let's let's see this practically in our, our own lives. The fear of a pay cut, or God forbid, a job loss, before it happens, and the worry of a pay cut or job loss after it happens, is perhaps likely to affect us more than the pay cut or job loss itself. I've been working as a business journalist for about 25 years now, and I have always come to understand uh, that the psychology of money is far more important than the economics of money. What do I mean by the psychology of money? Simply what money does to our hearts, what money does to people's hearts. That's the psychology of money. You can relate to this. If you have an SIP, if you've been investing in a systematic investment plan over the last five years, if you have investments in the stock market, or even if you you even have a pension plan that has exposure to the stock market, what's happening now can really mess with your hearts. And and here's why I believe the emotional pain may actually be greater than the economic pain. Today, we all expect the economic challenges. When it comes, uh, it's going to come, it's not going to take us by surprise. It will hurt us but it's not gonna catch us unaware. It's not gonna surprise us anymore. But we don't yet quite know how the lockdown is gonna affect us emotionally. We don't quite know how a prolonged recession or God forbid, even a depression, we don't know how that's gonna affect us emotionally. We don't know how those fears that we all have to face is gonna affect us emotionally. And so how do you prepare to face a challenge you don't even understand. And so the, the emotional challenge is a real one. And I really want to encourage people to find safe communities in which you can, you can talk about this. Safe communities in which you can discuss your fears about money, about your careers, about your job. Small groups, churches, the family, of course. Stay plugged in. Stay connected. The second challenge we are, we are all going to face is pay cuts, job losses. They're already happening. I'm sure you've heard news about that. There is going to be acute pain for a few months, perhaps longer. We, we've got to face this. Uh, and We've got to ask God to give us the grace and the strength to navigate this, this season. It's going to affect Christians and non-Christians equally, but God will give us grace to endure. The third challenge I think we should be aware of is, I call this, can the sheep fight the wolves? Can the sheep fight the wolves? In the slowdown and during the recovery, our gospel values are going to be challenged. We're going to be forced to decide whether we're going to live entirely for our own survival, both in the slowdown and in the recovery when it happens, or if you're going to kind of set aside some of our own self-interest and, and, and live for the larger good, That's what the gospel compels us to. And so those are three challenges I think we ought to be thinking of. The third thing I want to look at is, what are some ways in which we can prepare for these challenges? And I want to talk about two things. How do we prepare economically and how do we prepare emotionally? In how do we prepare economically, I want to talk about quickly talk about earning, spending, saving, giving, borrowing, all of those. Let's talk about borrowing first. I mean, I pick borrowing because that's probably top of our mind. The RBI has just announced a three month moratorium and perhaps some of you are thinking, should I take it or not? Here's some quick, practical, financial advice. Uh, if you have credit card outstandings, don't opt for the moratorium. You'll end up paying a huge interest. Pay it. If you have personal loans, card loans, pay it uh, as long as you can pay it. If you can't pay it, that's a different issue. But if you can pay it, pay it. Don't opt for the moratorium. But if you have a home loan, which has a significantly high EMI, I would ask you to consider how, how is your savings? How is your liquidity? You have like a decent three month, four months expenses and EMI payments in some kind of savings. If you have, then you should pass the moratorium offer and just keep paying your EMI. If you don't have any savings, and that's, that's quite, uh, quite possible and quite, even quite likely among uh, a lot of people, especially millennials. Um, if you don't have any savings, then maybe you should opt for that and and just save that up. Uh, you're going to have to pay an interest burden, but, but at least you have some liquidity. Liquidity. So that's a quick word of um, counsel. What do we do with our savings? If you have SIPs and stock market investments, and if you've seen values fall, uh, as I'm sure all our portfolios have taken a hit at this time. Uh, again, here's a question I would ask. Uh, do you need the money now? If the money was saved for later, maybe for retirement, 10 years later, 20 years later, let it be. Don't liquidate. Hold on to it. it it's going uh, it, to, th- th- things are going to pick up. Uh, this is not the end of the world, uh, at least as far as we know. Uh, and so, so you don't have to sell. But, but if you need the money, if you're in a desperate situation, you're going to be selling at a huge loss. Spending. I think this crisis is really good for most of us. Because this is going to bring much needed discipline to our spending. We've all been a little unwise. We've all been a little irresponsible in our spending. You know, denying ourselves is a good discipline. And in times of economic prosperity, we don't learn this discipline. It's good for our soul. Uh, It's even good for our body, denying ourselves. I'm not saying enjoying what God has given us is bad. All I'm saying is denying ourselves is good too. Just as enjoying is, is, is good. If you don't have the habit of making a budget, it's about time you start. Um Earning, that's the difficult part. I don't really have any advice for people who have to take a pay cut or people who lose their jobs. I, I can only grieve with you. And if that happens to me, I hope you will all grieve with me. We need each other. Uh, we need to make sure that we're all meaningfully plugged into a church community. Of course, we have our family too. So I can only agree with you. I don't really have any advice, but please allow me to share a couple of things. Money is just a currency of our desires. Uh, Sometimes we see money as a proxy for other things we want. We think we need money, but in reality, we don't actually need money. We need something else that money can buy. So this is a good time to disentangle money from the true and deeper desires of our heart. When we disentangle money from these true and deeper desires of our heart, we we can see things more clearly. We can see things more objectively. We we can learn to trust God better. Uh, We all assume that uh, the desire for money is what drives us. And that's true to some extent. But I also want to help us see, something we may not recognize, that the fear that our fears about money also drive us. And now is a good time to face those fears that we have about money. One last thing on, on, on money, and I'll move to a couple of thoughts and we'll close. Uh, in a parable, in, a, in an incident that Jesus uh, recorded in uh, Luke chapter 21, he talks about rich, uh, the rich people coming and putting gifts into their treasury and a poor widow coming and putting two small coins. And I think we all know that uh, incident. What's interesting here is that the poor were giving and the rich were giving. The rich were putting in their gifts and the poor widow was also putting in something. But the middle class was not giving. That's interesting, isn't it? That's quite true here. The poor give. Haven't we all seen a beggar on the street share his food with a stray dog? The poor give. The rich also give. And we've been hearing a lot about how the philanthropists are giving away a lot of their wealth away. It's the middle class that finds it hard to give. The poor have nothing to lose. The rich obviously have a lot to lose and a lot to give. It's the middle class that's stuck in the middle that experiences the greatest fear. At this time, this crisis is an opportunity for us to rise above our middle class fears uh, by hoping in Christ Christ more. One thought on on giving this is a great time to test if we have been giving out of our faith in God or if we have been giving out of our faith in our earning ability. If we have indeed been giving out of our faith in God, we will continue giving. We will continue tithing. We will continue being generous. But if we have been giving out of our strength, our confidence, in our ability to earn, then our giving, we might be a little uncertain about our giving. That's a, that's a good test. That's How do we prepare economically for a slowdown? How do we prepare emotionally? I think the best way to prepare emotionally is is to realize that the illusion of control has been demolished. We never had any control over anything in our lives. We just imagined we did. And this bubble has shown us that nobody's in control. Governments aren't in control. Leaders aren't in control. Prime ministers aren't in control. Nobody is in control. <clears throat> Facing this reality is going to help us <clears throat> help us emotionally deal with this storm. Excuse me. <clears throat> the last thing I want to close in a couple of, close in a couple of minutes is how can we hope in Christ? I want to talk about two things about hoping in Christ. First, many of us probably believe that Christian hope is easy. It is not. Christian hope is free, but it is not easy. Uh, We all have this image of Christian hope that looks like a Barbie doll, all, all dressed up, all pretty. That's not the picture of Christian hope the Bible gives us. The Bible gives us a picture of a pregnant woman in labor as the image of Christian hope. We see that in Romans chapter 8. So Christian hope is not easy. And this is a good time to learn Christian hope. Last thing. This crisis is going to clarify and sanctify our hope in Christ. It's going to clarify And sanctify our hope in Christ? How is it gonna clarify our hope in Christ? It's gonna clarify our hope in Christ by helping us see was our security really Christ? If our jobs are threatened, when our investments are kind of losing value, how much are we shaken? I'm not saying we won't be shaken at all if we we believe in Christ, hope in Christ. We will be shaken, but how much are we gonna be shaken? It's going to tell us where our security really was. And that's how this crisis is going to clarify our hope in Christ. Second, this crisis is going to sanctify our hope in Christ. What do I mean by that? It's going to sanctify our hope in Christ because God forbid, if we take pay cuts or lose jobs, our investments are wiped out. If the worst happens, it's going to be a test of, are we hoping in Christ for himself or, Are we hoping in Christ for something else that he can give? And if we come out of this crisis hoping in Christ for himself and not just for what he can give, that is hope sanctified. So God's going to use this crisis to both clarify and sanctify our hope in Christ. And those are some thoughts that I wanted to share. I hope it was helpful. Um, I I think we have some time for questions as well. Uh, Over to you, Justin.
0: Great. Uh, Thank you so much, Anand. I think that was really something that we needed to hear, especially I think there are a lot of people in our audience who are uh, younger millennials who have been in the job market and the workforce for just a couple of years and kind of navigating savings and um, I think this is a really good time to kind of look back and think that where does our security honestly lie? Is it in Christ? Or where do we gain that validation from? And I think another point that I really that really hit me was that the grief and pain is real, but the grief and pain is not the end. I think we often forget that. Um, I'd now like to open the floor for questions. Uh, as you can see in your chat window. Uh, you can post your questions to Slido. Uh, We already have a couple of questions. So um, maybe um, I can read it out. And uh, Anand, do you want to take one question at a time?
1: Sure, we can do that. And and Akshay, please uh, feel free to jump in. If you want to add anything, anything what I say, just feel free to jump in.
2: I'll avoid the financial advice, but I'll be happy to jump in on (laughs) theological advice.
0: Um, Sure. Okay. So this is um, the question that has been upvoted the most. It says, uh, if I decide to quit my job now, by when can I expect for corporates to start hiring again?
1: Uh, I'm a little perplexed by the question. I mean, why would anyone want to quit a job now? Um, uh, So that's one. But I think the pertinent point of the question is, when can we start uh, expecting (laughs) corporates to... I uh, start hiring again. One of the unique things we are seeing in this in this slowdown is that the world over, governments are very actively trying to save jobs. We're not seeing it in India yet because it's still very early days. But if you see what the U.S. is doing, what Germany has done, what France has done, what Italy has done, they're really working hard to make sure uh, that they save jobs. And even if that means helping private corporations, corporations with finances, they're doing that. And um, so, so I think that's I think that should that's a source of comfort. I mean that we should be encouraged by that, and uh, we'll, we'll that'll have implications in India as well. But to to actually say when companies will start hiring, it's it's very difficult. But let me say this from the Indian context: when the lockdown eases and when when the government feels it's actually safe for people to move out, we are going to see. Uh, a fair bit of pent-up demand being uh, released. And that is assuming we get over this in a month or two. But if it really prolongs, uh, then that's a risk. So if we kind of get over this in a month or two, uh, mid-May, June, and then things are, you know, if if the the government manages to keep the virus in check, then I think the pent-up demand that's going to be uh, a, a fair bit of release, and so so you can expect some jobs, but but the world is going to change. Um, uh, you know, I think people are going to discover technology a lot more, uh, so different kind of jobs will emerge. So so reskilling is something we should all be looking at. So I think that's a qualified answer. I don't think I can give a um, uh, yeah unqualified answer to that question.
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, okay. So the second question. Uh, asks, it seems governments may run short of money due to general economic slowdown and now COVID. Um, am I saving safe in the private government banks, RDs and FDs? Are they safe?
1: Okay. Again, I have to qualify the, qualify the answer. If things go really bad, and if we kind of move into a depression, um, depending on the kind of loans the bank you have an FDN has given out. you know some banks have a large retail exposure. Uh, some banks you know have, have a fairly significant corporate exposure as well. Or you might have put your money in a society or a cooperative bank which might have a significant exposure. In, in some other parts, so so it's all going to play out based on the kind of exposure the bank has, based on uh, the the financial stability the bank the bank has. But in the short run, over the next three to four months, uh, I don't think there's any need to worry about bank savings. The stock market is a different thing. Uh, but bank savings in the in the short run next like, so to three, 3 to 4 months we don't i don't think there's anything to worry but if there's no economic activity globally for let's say 8 to 12 months and that's a possibility we cannot overrule and if you see three or four consecutive quarters of negative economic growth and there everything comes down to a slowdown then god save us all even otherwise it's god save us all but yeah it can it, It can get bad, and so so I think we have to just just be alive, be watchful. There's no need to panic. Uh, Definitely, there's no need to panic when it comes to bank deposits, uh, RDs, FDs, savings, etc. I hope that was helpful in some way, small way at
0: least. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The third question is from actually a couple who earn 1 lakh per month and around the age of 32 years. Uh, they're asking what kind of investments should we look to make say towards their retirement fund?
1: Great. So uh, two weeks ago, one month ago, the answer would have been very different. Now we'll have to kind of think of the answer. It, it, let me, let me just say one thing front. You know, I, I'm a business journalist. I, I've been a business journalist for 25 years uh, but that doesn't make me qualified to give personal finance advice, right? So so I am that, that I, I don't presume I'm qualified to give personal finance advice. You should uh, consult with a, a certified financial planner. Right? You should take professional advice. But having I mean, worked as a business journalist for so long, I, I do have a sense. But that's all this is. This is a sense. And, you know, I, I don't want to kind of take the easy no-comment route. Um, so, I, you know, let me, give, let me share some thoughts. Uh, a person in is 30, I think what you're saving for your retirement, you're probably not going to have to touch for another 25, 30 years at least. But that's assuming things don't go really bad, which is a possibility we cannot rule out. Um, so that said, uh, based on your risk appetite, uh, a 20% exposure of your total investment, 30%, 50%. Based on your risk appetite, investment through, through mutual funds is something you could, you could think about. Um, and, and, and I say that, you know, had this been normal circumstances, most financial advisors would have kind of recommended the couple kind of take a more aggressive stance in equities. Uh, the circumstances don't uh, warrant that. Uh, so I, I wouldn't still completely avoid equity if I were a thirty year old and I was saving five time hundred times. So I would still take a twenty percent, twenty five percent. Hey, this is subjective, right? I mean, please, please don't sue me if, if the advice is wrong. You know, so uh, you know, I I I I qualified myself. I'm not, a, you know, I'm not an expert. I'm not a personal finance expert. And that's not my goal. You know, uh, I'm not. Yeah. So so those are some 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 broad thoughts. Yeah.
0: All right. Okay. Uh, let's take some of the questions that are coming in right now. Uh, okay. This one has three upwards. Um, someone's asking, are there any industries that are going to be hit harder than others? Is it advisable to think of changing career tracks? That's I think a, the second question you no, kind no. of addressed, but yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great, that's a great question. Um, and that's a smart question. I mean, who will ask a question, many people have voted it. They're, they're obviously thinking. That's, that's a great way, to, uh, great way to think. And God uses these circumstances to, to outwork his calling and his purposes in our life. So, so we shouldn't see any of these as purely economic. Uh, you know, we've got to see the hidden but very present sovereign hand of God guiding each of us in in all of these decisions and all of these changes. Um, Some industries are pretty obviously hit. If you're in the airline business, you know what's happening. If you're in the hotel hospitality business, you know what's happening. If you're in the event business, you know what's happening. So some businesses are obviously hit. Uh, Some businesses are um, not so much hit. Healthcare, pharmaceuticals. Uh, Those are businesses which are are facing different kinds of risk. you're the healthcare industry, you are working at great sacrifice and and the country is applauding that at the moment. So yes, different industries have different risk levels. Uh, Reskilling is, I think, a very good uh, option to consider. Changing careers, I think we must be alive, Uh, uh, keep very prayerfully exploring these options, um, and even acquiring new uh, new um, skills through education, uh, new learning. There's plenty of online courses. Not all of it is very expensive. Uh, those are things we should you should absolutely we should all be absolutely considering. Yeah.
0: Uh, okay. There's another question that kind of um, is the logical next question to this. Someone asks. Uh, What are the few steps I should be taking to prepare myself for the next batch of hiring or if someone's looking to change tracks?
1: Okay. I think it's still a little early to answer that question. Um, The world's going to change. And um, I think there are a lot of us who are trying to anticipate our... I think "anticipate" is too strong a word. I think some of us are trying to hazard a guess or, or, or trying our best to imagine uh, or do some scenario planning in terms of what's going to change and how 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 it's going to change. Um, too early to tell. I think um, just just prayerfully staying connected to uh, to how things unfold might kind of throw up some. Um, opportunities yeah it's too early to kind of yeah i don't have any um, specific thoughts on those yeah
0: okay i think we can take one more follow-up question so someone says since you spoke about reskilling what are the top five sectors that will see an upswing
1: uh tough question to answer uh but it's an interesting question and um I'm going to try and get back with an answer on that. It's something that I'll be uh, personally interested in researching up for myself. And um, I'm sure we have the person's email ID or something. So so a few days, maybe sometime next week, I'm going to try and get back. I, I think I'll, I'll find it interesting to research and try and get an understanding on it, of it myself. So um, I'm going to take that question, hold on to it. I, I don't want to give a half-cook kind of an answer, but it's a question because it's a question that Merits some thought and consideration. So I'd like to give it that.
0: Yeah. Sure. Sure. Okay. Um, so someone else is asking if we are in full-time vocational ministry, should we take up a part-time hustle to reduce the burden?
1: Part-time hustle? <laughs> nice choice of word. I think this this time is is going to help It's going to test our theology of vocation. Um, you know I've been reflecting um, I, I'm in lockdown too and um, I think I've washed more dishes than I ever have in my life and I have to ask I've been asking myself I know the economic value of washing dishes is, is hardly anything but but in God's eyes was my um, work as a business journalist or as a pastor uh Really more valuable than the vocation of washing dishes. Um, I think all vocation, and and we tend to value vocation uh, by its economic value. That's not how God values vocation. I think God values vocation by by just the act of service or, or just the sheer purpose of work for which uh, He created us. And and so so I, I, I would I would kind of. Um, I would say, don't call it a hustle. Embrace it. Embrace it as as God's purpose uh, in the season, if you have to. If someone in full-time vocational ministry needs to take up a part-time job to support himself. Uh, I think in this hour of crisis, I don't think we need to call that a hustle. We, I think we should embrace that as part of God's vocation. All work is beautiful before God. And uh, yeah, I think... I think we should, I think it's absolutely fine to consider that. Again, again, I want to keep laboring this. Is fear the motive? Is fear driving this person to take up that part-time job? Or is that just just being practical, honest before God, uh, dealing with that whatever fear through faith in Christ Jesus, and then thinking, seeing that as a practical need and as a, as a, as a purposeful a way to meet that need. Uh, I think that's important too. So, so it, it, it's not just behavior. It's, it's the heart, the need, the behavior that's even more important.
0: All right. Okay. Um, another question is, what will be the repercussion on the real estate market? Uh, someone's looking to liquidate a piece of land in the next few years to build a house for retirement. Okay. Also, the age of this person is between fifty-five
1: to sixty. Okay. Uh, next few years is very comforting. Uh, the way the question was shaping, I thought is going to be next few months, and that's not comforting at all. A few years is, is a long time, right? Is 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 a long time. So, what's going to happen to the real estate market? Uh, um. I think again, the next two three months, you're not really going to see much because everything is shut down. I mean, uh, whether the the, the lease rental market or outright purchases, not, not nothing's going to happen in the next uh, two to three months. You know, so so values are not going to be tested unless, unlike the stock markets where, where trading is still happening, transactions still happening, and, and values being discovered and reset, uh, the real estate market is kind of in a freeze right now. So. Um, Uh, So nothing much is going to really happen, um, but we'll see things unfold very rapidly. Um, You know, if we start seeing large scale job losses, that's definitely going to have an impact on the real estate market. We're going to see it unfold.
0: Yeah. Okay. um, Someone says, can we expect growth in the startups amidst the Corona crisis?
1: How do you define growth? Um, I think we are, we are used to defining growth as, uh, you know, a few billion dollars growth in valuation every, uh, every few weeks that's driven by investor money. If that's the definition of growth, I don't see that happening pretty soon. But if you define growth as innovation, uh, innovating to serve humanity better through, through business as a vehicle, as a medium, I think we're going to see remarkable growth. And I think we're seeing that. I think startups are kind of finding new ways to develop tests. I don't know how effective they are, but I know of a couple of startups which have already developed uh, tests to kind of see if you're positive or not for the uh, COVID-19 virus in just five minutes out of your home. Uh, We're going to see a lot of innovation. We are going to see, not just in the healthcare space, uh, in so many spaces, we're going to see a lot of innovation. So if if you define growth, by innovation to serve humanity, we're going to see a lot of growth.
0: Okay. I think we can take uh, the last three questions. Okay. Um, okay. How do you think the church can best support people in this time of financial distress?
1: Okay. Uh, can I invite Akshay in to, to kind of maybe open with that and I'll, I'll follow up with some thoughts.
2: Sorry, I missed that question. Could you oh, yeah. repeat it?
0: Yeah. Uh, how do you think the church can best support people in this time of financial distress?
2: Um, I think one of the things that I've, I've been saying this to our church quite a bit is that uh, earlier you 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 had this situation that was quite known that anxiety is quite common in cities, like individual anxiety is uh we know that it's a problem uh they say about 45 percent of uh delhi's professionals experience high levels of anxiety so we knew that but now what's changed is that we're experiencing two new kinds of anxiety we're experiencing digital anxiety and we're experiencing global community anxiety it's not just individuals now now it's whole communities and now it's expensive what i mean by digital uh anxiety is uh, it's actually term coined by this guy mark sayers he was uh, describing how he was uh, in Hawaii at uh, an airport and uh, they got on a plane. Uh, they got to L.A. where they were landing. They put on their phones and on Twitter, it showed up that there was an earthquake in Hawaii uh, while they were there. And suddenly they started feeling anxious. So while they were in Hawaii, there was no anxiety. during in the middle of the earthquake. But after they reached there and they saw it on social media, suddenly they felt anxious. So we've got now a digital nervous system that responds to what we receive, uh, how we receive news on social media. And one of the things that the church has the resources to do and really needs to do is to be a non-anxious presence in the world right now. Because with everyone anxious, I mean, we have resources in Christ to model what non-anxiety looks like, you know, and, uh, and I think Arun's done a great job of unpacking that, and so uh, I think that's one way uh, we need to. So, some things the church needs to avoid is trying to understand the mind of God in this. Is He judging the world? Is He condemning the world? Is He is He angry? You know, so uh, those kind of that, that kind of characterization is very major reaction. It's very quick, and you know, God is angry with us and He's punishing us. Uh, we we should avoid that. Uh, and one of the things that uh, is important to remember is that the early church has been through plagues. They've been through this before. And in those times, the early church was not concerned with questions like that. It was not concerned with, the, with his, whether God is judging Rome. The most pressing question the early church was concerned with is, how can I love my neighbor now? What can, how can I be a loving person to my... They weren't thinking about solving the world's problem. They weren't thinking globally. They were thinking locally. They were thinking, "Who's next to me? Who's my neighbor, and how can I love my neighbor?" And uh, and church historians tell us that uh, it was the loving witness of the church, uh, particularly in the plagues, uh, that was one of the catalysts for the growth of the church in the in those times. So while the Roman culture was leading people to street on, uh, leaving people to die on the streets. It was the church that was loving its neighbor in that time. And they weren't concerned about cosmic questions about what is God doing. Their, their first question was, how do I love my neighbor? So I think uh, those are the two things we need to be thinking. And the answer is going to look very differently to each church and to each uh, context and to each person. But these are the two things that we have an opportunity to kind of uh, respond. At. How, how, we can be a non-anxious presence and we can calm the fears of those who are fearful. Uh, because we have a hope in Christ. And we can be, even, even though we're physically distant, you can still be loving to your neighbor. You can still be, uh, you, know, you can still initiate ways in which to do that. So I think that's where the opportunity is.
1: Yeah, I, I love what Akshay said. The only thing I'd like to add is, um, is I think mission uh, by, by the church, by encouraging people to remain on mission. I think that's a wonderful antidote to anxiety because at the end of the day, mission is self-forgetfulness. Mission is thinking about others um, as much, if not more, than we're thinking about ourselves. And um, when our eyes, when our, heart, when our hearts, when our focus um, shifts and remains on mission, I think that's a that's a great antidote. Uh, and, and that's exactly what I was talking about. Uh, missing loving your neighbor. That's That's mission. Yeah. Mission can be a great, wonderful uh, antidote to anxiety. It, it can create a rhythm where we, we kind of uh, learn to, uh, in Christ, overcome our anxiety.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I, I think digital nervous system is like a spot on term. <laughs> um, okay, so the next question says Is pay cut a godly thing if my business is badly hit?
1: Okay, so I want to understand this. Um, is the person an employer or an employee? You have any? Uh, I'm
0: guessing it's an employer.
1: Okay, so um, I don't want to give a generalized answer, um, but let me let me let me state this. If it is fair for an employer uh, to cut salaries in a downturn. I'm not saying it's not fair. If an employer feels that way, then the employer is expecting the employees to share the risks of the business with him. That's not wrong. All I want to say is if that's the expectation in a downturn, um, I think the employer should should be willing to share the, the fruit of the business, the profits of the business, commensurately, with the employees as well. So so then then the employee employer has to move from um, just a pure employer employee relationship to saying, hey, hey, we are we are together stakeholders in this. Uh, we we see purpose in doing this business together. And and you bring value and we, we respect you and and uh, we want to share the fruit of the business in the good times. And in the bad times, would you uh, would you would you bear the pain along with us? Uh, and so that posture is important. So as long as that posture is there, um, pay cuts are also uh, a necessity. I mean, we're going to have to cut, cut our personal budgets. It, it's real. I mean, if, if there's less consumption, less money, it's it's it, it's real. And and sometimes pay cuts uh, can actually save job losses. No, that's that argument has been used well. It has also been abused and that will always be the case. We'll always have both scenarios. Uh, but pay cuts, um, um, you know, can save job losses. And generally, pay cuts must be led from the top. I mean, we have lots of statistics. I don't remember them offhand, but the CEO's salary is generally 200, 300 times more than the salary of the least employed person in the company. And and so, so pay cuts have to be disproportionately higher at the top. You can't have pay cut across the organization doesn't work that way. You know, you've got to have the CEO taking a 50% pay cut and then that kind of percolating down to a 5% pay cut for the least paid employee. So, so we've got all of those factors, Uh, all of those considers, uh, I wouldn't generalize and say, you know, pay cut is is ungodly, the hard motives and all of these factors need to be considered, yeah. Uh, You may be on mute, uh, Justin.
0: Sorry. Uh, I think there are a few more questions. Uh, Maybe Akshay, do you think we could uh, put those on an email um, that can be answered later on? Uh,
2: We can can put them on an email. I'm not sure. Uh, We we leave it to Anand to decide. Uh, But I mean, I think a more uh, possible, uh, a better possibility might be to do this again uh, maybe in a month's time or a couple of months time where we have a better sense of what's happening. So that, uh, I don't know, I, I, Anand, uh, we, we could do that, right? I mean, I think that's yeah, I'm happy to. I think that's a better than an email response. Yeah, I think um, so. So we can yeah. keep the conversation, but we can yeah, do this can again. Conversation. Great.
0: Yeah. yeah, okay. So that sounds good. So uh, moving on to our second part, I'd like to call upon Akshay. Uh, so yeah, over to you, Akshay.
2: Okay great, uh, thanks so much, Anand. It was uh, it's always a pleasure to hear you uh, speak on uh, uh, I mean you speak with such skill and with such passion and, and, and such heart. so uh, it's it's a joy to hear you. Uh, I know it's ten o'clock this is the the latest I've ever preached a sermon, and I never thought I'd be preaching a sermon at ten o'clock in the night in my office online uh, to a group of people. Uh, and if you're going to fall asleep, I'm not even going to know because most of your video is off. So, uh, But I, I just wanted to take about 15-20 uh, uh, minutes to kind of ground our hearts in Scripture. And I want to take you to Habakkuk. Uh, and uh, Habakkuk is a book of questions and answers. Uh, and it's a book in which uh, it starts with questions and God answers. And uh, the book kind of fittingly ends with a prayer. And Habakkuk's prayer is, is what I thought we could think about because... Uh, what's happening right now is that we're, we're going through uh, a shared global experience in, in space. Everyone, everywhere in the world is going through uh, some version of what we're going through. Uh, but it's also a shared global experience in time. I mean, we're also ex- to some extent experiencing uh, some of what the early church felt. You know, I mean, the early church, uh, uh, fear, anxiety, grief, insecurity, they were common emotions in the early church. And uncertainty, rejection, difficulty, conflict and hardships, they were common situations in the early church. And in some ways, uh, all of our, uh, you know, everything that was familiar to us, everything that we felt we were in control of, it's it's all gone. And it's all been shaken in some sense. Uh, So for a time like this, uh, we're experiencing uh, emotions and situations uh, in in a much more common way than before. And at a time like this, we, must, we should resist two dangers. You know, there's, there's one danger where people face the reality of what's going on without remembering our hope in Christ. And that's going to make you despairing and cynical and jaded and very fearful. And, so, and, so some, some, and people who think that way, I mean, uh, you're not going to be satisfied unless you hear something so practical uh, that basically says, tell me how to get out of this and that's all that matters to me. And uh, and then there's the other danger where we remember our hope in Christ without facing reality. Uh, we're in denial and, and, and that will make us superficial and naive, you know, and people like that might be thinking, tell everyone to stop worrying and let, let's just start rejoicing in God. And that's all that matters to God, you know, and, uh, and that's just too naive. Uh, and Habakkuk is going to show us what real hope looks like. And he's going to show us three things. He's going to show us that real hope, is, uh, real hope uh, faces the reality of loss. Uh, It remembers the root of joy and it turns to God for strength. So uh, look at the first, let me read out uh, Habakkuk's prayer to you. Uh, He says, this is Habakkuk uh, chapter three, verse 17 onwards. He says, uh, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive oil fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herds in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on on my high places. And let's just think think about that first thing. Uh, Look at what Habakkuk says. Uh, uh, The fig tree does not blossom. There's no fruit in the vines. The olive crop fails. Uh, The fields don't produce any food. Uh, The flock is cut off from the fold and there's no herd in the stalls. I mean, this is not, the language of nature this is the language of livelihood and what he's essentially saying is uh, you know if you translate it he's kind of saying i don't have any savings from last year and i won't have any earnings for the next year he's saying i've lost my income but my debts and my bills are still here you know he's saying what am i going to say to my family you know how am i going to feed my children Uh, how am i going to pay my employees and how will i get through this and these are the hard questions that he's faced with. And it's, it's what we're all feeling to some degree or another. You know? and, and some people think that you know our feelings are futile. We shouldn't be thinking about them. And others think our feelings are foundational. That's all we should be thinking about. Uh, but feelings are, I, I love this quote from Pete Scazzaro. He says, feelings are like children when you're on vacation. Uh, you can't put them in the driver's seat or stuff them away and put a sock in their mouth. You have to listen to them. You have to take care of them. You have to protect them, and at times you have to put boundaries around them. You know, at a time like this, if, if we're not facing reality and being sensitive to how we're feeling and grieving and and uh, and giving space to how we're feeling, uh, we're not being realistic. You know, and Habakkuk's prayer is realistic. He faces the reality of loss. He's facing uh, what he's going through, and uh, uh, what he's saying to us is that you can lament without being lame. You know, you, you can be uh, you can weep. Without being weak, and you can grieve without being ungodly. You can do that. That's that's part of our faith. It's part of our tradition. So, uh, though the fig tree does not bud, uh, and it's important that he says that. You know, he says, though the fig tree does not bud. Now, imagine if he said, since the fig tree does not bud. Imagine if he said, since the fig tree does not bud. Uh, and uh, there's no food in the vines and the producer of the olive the, uh, crop fails and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. He might have said, uh, you know, uh, I, I, he might have said, uh, since, this, since this does not happen, I will despise the Lord and I will take offense with the God of no salvation. And if he just looks at the reality without looking at hope, he's going to turn cynical and he wouldn't say what he says next. But it's because he says though and not since, that he's able to say the next thing. And that's what tells us about uh, real hope. Real hope remembers the root of joy. And then next thing he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Uh, and before I kind of draw some thoughts out of that, just there's some things we should not be saying at a time like this. You know, they're very popular that you'll hear every now and then. But first of all, everything happens for a reason. You know, this is, this, we should not be saying silly things like that. It sounds very spiritual, It sounds very, uh, but the thing is, you know, we we know we don't have an arbitrary existence where things happen by chance. uh, And if you do, then you're more likely to be hyperactive at this time and aggressively trying to create your own destiny and make something good happen. But uh, we know that we don't have an arbitrary existence, but uh, we're not fatalistic either. You know, we don't have a fatalistic story eh, where things happen to us as if the gods are battling over us in some cosmic video game. You know, we, we, And if we do, then we remain hyper-passive. We just wait for something good to happen to us. Uh, and that, this, so that, that's not something we should be saying. And the second thing we, we shouldn't be saying, which is kind of half true, half not true. It's not true enough. Uh, uh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. You know, we, we, shouldn't, we, we shouldn't necessarily say that because there's, suffering does not guarantee that you'll become a better person. Suffering only guarantees that you'll change. Now you may change in some ways. That you may become more cynical. You may become more determined. You may become more bitter, or you may become more tender. You may become more hopeful. So, but there's no guarantee that if you're suffering, you're going to get stronger. That's just not the reality. In to some degree, we we all choose suffering. We choose. Uh, careers that kill us so that we can get rich. You know, we, we choose uh, gyms that kill us so that we can get fit. You know, we choose colleges that kill us so that we can get opportunities. We, so to some degree, we choose uh, suffering. And I'm not saying that God has chosen the suffering for us, but uh, sometimes, sometimes God uses what we are going through to purify us and to uh, uh, and to purge us. So, so sometimes suffering, uh, uh, and this is, this is not to say that uh, God has brought this on us in order to do that. But because this is happening, that's this is one thing he can be doing and he wants to do. He wants to uh, purge and purify us. So sometimes what he can do is, is, God can, is God can be using this time to kill something in you before it kills you. So he can use this time to kill something in you before it kills you. And one thing that's happened in all of this is that the powerlessness of the powerful is exposed. You know the the weakness of all our strength is exposed the illusion the illusion of control is exposed, uh, and the frailty of all our false foundations is exposed uh, and at that and at this time we have this uh the, the, in a way we feel kind of naked and vulnerable you know and at this point, God wants to say that I can clothe you, you know, I, I can be the one who is your strength, so uh, there's something in there. Uh, but this is my favorite thing that people say at the time like this. And, and I hate to say that it's, we shouldn't say it, but this too shall pass. Uh, I, I love it. it, it it's my, one of my favorite things we should not say, but, and I hate to say it, but it's deceitfully true. It's deceitfully true because the, it, it's true that all Christian suffering and all suffering as a Christian has an expiry date. Like everything does have an expiry date, but there's a false belief in that where I don't think I can be joyful until this is over. I don't think I can be happy until this passes. And if that's true, there's a warning in there where we may have misplaced our hope for joy in something rather than someone. And that brings us to what Habakkuk says. Habakkuk says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. All Christian joy uh, comes from knowing a person, not from knowing the future. It does not come from knowing the future. There are other religions that find joy in knowing the future. But in, in, in the Christian hope, we find our joy from knowing a person. And look, uh, look at the things he says. I will rejoice in the Lord, the creator, the maker, the sustainer of the universe. And I will uh, take joy in the God of my salvation. It's very interesting because what he's saying is he's, he's a prophet kind of pleading for the nation. But when he closes his prayer, he's saying this is the God of my salvation. This is not personal. God is not just powerful. He's personal. He, he, he's, not just a, 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 he's not just a power. He's a person. And he's my person. You know, the, uh, one of my guilty pleasures when I was in Bible college was watching Grey's Anatomy. And I'm not ashamed to admit that I've watched it. But uh, uh, in one uh, episode, uh, one of the characters says to another that she's her emergency contact on the hospital intake form. And then she says to her, you're my person. You're my emergency contact and and that's what Habakkuk is saying you know he's saying to God you're my person you're the one I turn to you're the one I trust in this crisis, and you're not just the god of some salvation in a cosmic sense you're my person you're my, you you belong to me and I belong to you and let me give you a sense of how this works out in in, in life i mean I, if i'm if I'm in a healthy uh, relationship dynamic with my wife uh, the world can be crumbling around me i'll be okay I'll be fine if I'm in a conflict with my wife everything can be perfect around me I'll be devastated inside because if if my relationship with my person is is healthy I can be joyful no matter what's going on around me and in personal relationships we know this intuitively' but in, the, in a divine relationship we're kind of slow learners and our uh, and the thing that's happening now is that our comfort from God substitutes is fading you know, it, it, how many Netflix shows can you watch? You know, at some point you're going to think this is, this is, this is just not satisfying. And, and our need for God is exposed at a time like this. Is there, is there anyone who knows you better than he does? Is there really anyone who knows you better than he does? And, and our nearness to God at this time can be tangible. Because if you really think about it, is there, is there anyone who can keep him socially distant from you? Is there anyone who can keep him far from you? And the thing is, when, when the Zoom call is over, you know, we'll all be gone, but he'll be with you. He'll be near to you because right? he's your person. And in him, we can rejoice. So uh, this is very important because real hope sees things differently. It it does not just look at the reality and get despairing. It does not just look at the hope and get all super spiritual. It holds them both together. It sees both. It's able to see the reality uh, and it's able to remember uh, the truth and rejoice in it and rejoice in the person. So, and finally, it, it turns to God for strength. Uh, look at what Habakkuk says. He says, God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deers. He makes me tread on my high places. Uh, and I, and I, and I want to say this at this point, you know, when we are going through a time like this, our feet become unsteady and our feet uh, tend to slip. And God wants to study our hearts so that he can study our feet. God wants to study our hearts so that he can study our feet. You know, you hear a lot about people in Delhi and it's supposed in global cities around the world where uh, they're, they're tough on the outside, they're, they're tough on the outside, but they're tender inside, you know, so gentle giants. And, and Delhi is the kind of city where, you know, you have to, you, you feel like you have to be tough on the outside, uh, but you can't hide that softness inside. You can't hide that tenderness inside. And, What the prophet is doing here, what the prophets in in general do and what Habakkuk is doing here is he's showing us what it's like to be tender on the outside and tough on the inside. So tenderness on the outside means you're able to grieve, you're able to be sad, you're able to weep, you're able to lament, you're able to process difficult emotions and not tuck them away and hide them. But you're tough inside because you have real hope. You're tough inside because your heart is not troubled. And that's the, that's the real thing about real hope. Here's, here's, here's what he's, he wants us to know. Because the thing is, uh, no trouble is real trouble until it troubles your heart. No trouble is real trouble until it begins to trouble your heart. And when the world is troubled, that's okay. But if your heart is troubled, that's when the real trouble begins. And while the world may have trouble, Jesus actually wanted his disciples not to be troubled. He told them, you know, don't be troubled. In this world, you will have trouble, but in me you will have peace. And and God is steadying our hearts, and steady by uh and by steadying our hearts, He's going to steady our feet. Uh, so how does He steady our feet? So look at what Habakkuk says. He says, uh, he 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 makes my feet like the feet of a deer. Now now I I, I read up something about deer feet now deer feet uh, or hooves they say are anatomical wonders okay because whether they're simply running or chasing other deer or evading danger the muscular hind legs propel their movements and the front legs serve as pivot points to make sharp turns but the hooves make it all possible you know imagine that and at this point we need feet that will help us pivot to make sharp turns. And we, so it's very interesting what what he's saying. Is so I, I, and I want you to, I don't want you to underestimate the power that God's word has to give you wisdom for this time. I don't want you to underestimate that, because uh, conversations like this are so valuable. But the the daily rhythm of turning to God in Scripture and seeking wisdom from Him, don't underestimate how much power there is in God's word to give you wisdom for this time to strengthen your feet. Uh, the second thing, he says, he makes our feet uh, tread on high places. It's a time where it's possible for a lot of people to slip up. And God is kind of giving us the sense that we can trust him to keep our feet firm where others may slip. In a time like this, don't underestimate the power of God's spirit to give you courage to get through this time. And to steady your heart to get through this time, so you may be, you, you, if your heart is steady, you can walk through this time. You can walk through this uh, uncertainty uh, in a way. In, 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 while you may be watching other people who don't have to, so slip, you know. And and he's, he, he can he can he can steady our feet that way. But here's how he does it. How does he steady our feet? And uh, he does it by studying our hearts. And uh, here's what's important: our feet won't slip uh, when we know that everything is under his feet. Our feet will not slip when we know that everything is under his feet. Uh, when, when Habakkuk says, God, the Lord is my strength. It's a reference to something uh, in the past. It's just a reference to something that's going to happen in his immediate future. And it's a reference to something much later. It's a reference to God's strength uh, to rescue Israel out of slavery in Egypt. That uh, It was the Lord's strength that delivered Israel out of slavery from Egypt. It's a reference to God's strength to redeem Israel out of exile uh, in the situation that he's in. So God is going to use his strength to redeem them uh, from exile. Uh, But in the future, God's saving strength delivers us from the real poverty of going through this without him and brings us into the real riches of being seated in the high places with him. And if you think about uh, when Paul prays for the Ephesians, uh, for the Ephesian church, uh, he's praying for them uh, in a way where he 's celebrating god 's mighty strength and he 's celebrating god 's saving strength. so Habakkuk 's talking about uh, God as the god of my salvation and the Lord is my strength that's saving strength and he's and Paul is celebrating uh, god 's saving strength that is fully demonstrated when God raised Christ from the dead and here's, here's just listen listen to this prayer. Uh, Paul prays in Ephesians uh, 1, to 23, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and in his, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength which he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all, far above all rule and authority. Power and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Your feet will be steady when you know that everything is under his feet. Every authority, every rule, every power, every dominion, everything is under his feet. And when you know that, your feet will be steady. And and your feet will be steady when you know where we are seated. Because uh, before we can stand on our feet, before we can uh, before we think about standing before anyone, we must always remember where we are seated. Because not only has uh, God's saving strength been used to raise Christ from the dead, his saving strength has been used to raise us up with Christ and to seat us with him in the heavenly realms. So in Ephesians 2, Paul says this, he says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in christ jesus now the, the the real poverty at a time like this is to go to go through this without him and the real riches we have are that we are seated in the heavenly realms with him we are in christ jesus and everything is under his feet and that's what's going to steady our feet at a time like this uh let, let me close with this i mean uh I was thinking about all the things we should not say. And I thought about what should we say? What can we say at a time like this? And uh, and I think there's a, there's a song that's known as a children's song, but it's really not a children's song. It's a song called, he's got the whole world in his hands. Uh, you may know it as a Sunday school song. It is not a Sunday school song. No one knows who wrote it, uh, but we know in what circumstances it was written. It was written in slavery. It was written by a slave in the, in the United States and it was part of the Spiritual's Triumphant Old and New Publication in 1923. It's the first time it was written. Nobody knows who wrote it. It could have been a single slave. It could have been a community of slaves, but it came out of slavery. And it's a song that became popular in 1957 and then later on became best known as a song for children. But uh, it's a song in which, uh, and you've got to imagine this. Here is a, a, a person in slavery without any rights without any hope, without any, uh, anything to look forward to. And there, he, in, this, in the cotton fields or wherever this a slave or this community of slaves were, they're singing that he's got the whole world in his hands and that's, that's their hope. And what a fitting thought that you know, uh, the voice and the words of a slave in a cotton fields in some sort of hardship nearly 100 years ago should remind a group of Christians of him who still holds the whole world in his own hands. And not only that, how important for us to remember that he who holds the whole world in his hand holds his people in his heart, that we are seated in the heavenly realms, we are in his heart. And and, and if God keeps us in his heart, we can face the reality of loss. We can remember the root of joy. And we can be strengthened by the saving strength of a sovereign Lord who delivers us from the real poverty of going through this without him and brings us into the real riches of being seated in glory with him. And that's my prayer for us, that you will feel rich in this way. And when you do, your hearts will be steady, and your feet will be steady as you trust him to lead you through this time of trouble, without your hearts being troubled. All right, uh, Jocelyn, I'll hand it over to you.
0: Great. Um... Thanks, Akshay. I think that was really important for us to hear about how I think it's really true that as we see our God substitutes kind of fading away, we end up taking extreme ends. You either become super uh, overworked or you're super lazy or you're super anxious or super uh, cynical. So I think kind of grounding ourselves in God's word and finding the appropriate middle ground is uh, really important. Um, Great. Uh, Thank you so much, Anand. Thank you so much, Akshay. That was really a great conversation. And hopefully we have more conversations like these in the days to come. Um, If you uh, check your chat box, you should see a feedback form link. Uh, Please feel free to click on it and give us your feedback for this event. That will be really helpful for us. Um, Another announcement I'd like to make is that tomorrow at 4 p.m. IST, Anand Mahadevan will be speaking over a Zoom webinar on the topic Your work still matters to God. This is being organized by city to city Mumbai's faith and work community to understand and seek direction for faith and work in this uncharted new coronavirus world. Uh, The sign-up details will also come up in the chat box. Uh, Also, it's displayed on your screen, so uh, feel free to uh, sign up for that. Um, all right, I think that's all we have for tonight. Thank you so much, everyone, for logging in. Wishing you and everyone safety. And Anand, uh, if you don't mind, can I ask you to close in prayer?
1: Thank you so much, everyone, for joining on the call. Yeah, thank, <coughs> thank you. you. And and thank you, Redima and Akshay, for putting this together. Thank you, uh, Father. We uh, come before you, Lord, in uh, worship. Um. Worshipping you for who you are. And, and we pray, Lord, uh, that uh, this season, this uh, time of crisis, uh, this uh, season of suffering would not be wasted on us. Yeah, I pray that, that this would be a time when each of us, Lord, we, that you would, you would truly help us, Lord. To, uh, you would truly help our hearts to embrace you. Uh, may the affections of our heart be so fixed on You uh, that we will be able to sing as and speak as Habakkuk said, Lord, and uh, and that not that uh, we will be blind, that we will be naive and not see what's happening around us, but but we will see that. Uh, but our hope of hope in Christ in our hearts will be far greater, Lord, than any of any of these uh, challenges. Uh, we pray, uh, Father, that uh, you would uh, protect us. We pray that you would bless us, that we might be a blessing to many. Uh, Lord, whether you keep us relatively safe through the slowdown, or whether you call us to endure economic difficulty, we pray through uh, whatever it is uh, that you lead us through. We know you're going to be walking with us and we pray, Lord, uh, would you help us, give us grace to continue to remain as ambassadors of Christ. Uh, thank you, Father. We worship you. In Jesus' name we pray.
2: Amen. 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 Thanks so much, Anand, for thanks. joining us.
0: Yeah, thanks, Aceh. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Good night. Thank you, everyone. Good night. Good night, everyone. Mm-hmm.